Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Don't look now, but gas prices are expected to hit unprecedented levels this summer. Food banks are bracing for impact. Would a merged liberal NDP party in Ontario get your vote? The new golf tour backed by Saudi Arabia has lured a PGA star. Burger King's new Pride Whopper stirs the pot. Find out why Canadian art is making a resurgence. And Hamilton's The Red Hill Valleys have released a new EP. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Well, it should come as no surprise um, when you look at the gas pumps now that they are this summer expected to go higher and higher and higher. How high will they go? That is the question. Rory Johnston is the founder of the Commodity Context Newsletter and managing director at Toronto-based investment firm Price Street and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Rory, good morning how are you uh, good morning thanks for having me rick so right now we're just uh, a smidge above two dollars some some areas about 205 210 depending on where you are in the gtha uh there is an intimation that we could be seeing much higher gas prices in the weeks to come what are you seeing what are some of the warning signs and some of the warning flags that jump out to you yeah, so so just around you know you know two ten or two you know just above that per liter, uh, including tax in in the Toronto area um, is at and around you, you know you're we're very much at record highs. You know this is wildly wildly high territory, and uh, like you were saying, unfortunately it seems like it's probably only going to get worse from here. Uh, and there's a couple things that are driving that right now. So on the first, you know, at the beginning of the year, we were already facing a really, really tight oil market. Uh, inventories have been drawing globally at the fastest pace on record uh, coming out of the COVID shock. Supply just didn't bounce back as quickly as demanded. And that's been a trend we've seen across a whole swath of commodities. So we were all in that. And then the Russia shock happened. Russia invaded Ukraine. We had this massive disruption in all these supply chains, uh, particularly energy shipments from Russia. And now on top of that, we also have a refining uh, capacity kind of global crisis and, and uh, refining margins or the difference between the price of crude oil and the price of you know, gasoline that you put in your tank are at or near all time highs. So we are in truly unprecedented territory uh, and there doesn't seem to be any you know, near term relief on the horizon. So from, I just want to work backward on this one, refining capacity issues, let's just call it that. We know that Canada is the third largest producer of oil. We have the third largest reserves, at least. Um, we're not, we're not um, uh, manufacturing or refining any of that oil. That is definitely an issue. Yeah, so we do refine some of it uh, here. The, the, the difference is that we don't really export much refined products, and particularly on the East, on the east Coast, uh, and into Ontario, we do import some products in the United States. Uh, really what we're facing, both globally and specifically kind of in North America, is the fact that over the past two decades or so, refining has actually been a terrible business to be in. It, you know, refining margins have been extremely low. It has been very unprofitable. And, and for many integrated companies, you know, those that produce oil upstream and refine downstream, uh, the refining was always a, a fairly substantial drag on overall earnings. So what you've seen is uh, companies closing refineries very, very quickly and shedding millions of barrels a day of capacity over the past uh, decade. Uh, and that accelerated in the you know, early innings of the COVID shock when obviously everyone stopped driving and, and it seemed particularly grim. So you, you saw an acceleration of that. 
Uh, so now we're in the situation where you just really don't have enough refining capacity in North America, and no one's going to be building any new refineries anytime soon either, because there hasn't been a new refining, uh, like a brand new refining complex in North America since the 1970s. So I think that is the, the kind of the thing you need to keep in your back of your mind, that there really isn't a quick fix at the end of this. Rory Johnston is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Managing Director at Toronto-based investment firm Price Street and founder of the Commodity Context Newsletter. Um, the Ukraine-Russia um, scenario, the war, the invasion that the Russians are, are in in Ukraine, that provided obviously an initial shock to the system when, especially when Canada and a host of other nations said we're no longer importing Russian oil. Has that shock subsided or are we still feeling the ramifications of that? Very much still feeling the ramifications. So the latest data we have for May is that Russian production has recovered a very little bit but only after a very, very large collapse in production in April. It was the largest such unplanned collapse in Russian production since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, you know, this is, you know, major pain on the Russia side. Uh, however, the interesting thing is that crude oil exports from Russia really haven't changed much. And what you've really seen is uh, the refining sector in Russia stop producing because they can't find people to buy the refined products. So what you've also done on top of this, you know, refining capacity crisis we were just talking about is you've also lost Russian refining capacity. So that's the channel that the tightness is coming through right now. But, you know, rest assured, we definitely have crude tightness behind that. And as soon as we try and figure out the refining capacity, then we're just going to keep hemorrhaging more and more Russian production of crude oil as well. Care to predict what's going to happen in the oil market over the next few weeks? Uh, next few weeks, I, you know, I think it's going to just be, you know, volatile and bouncy. I think over the coming six months or so, I expect that markets are only going to get tighter into the end, you know, into the fall. And that's because, you know, while everything, you know, we've always, we've obviously been very, very tight with markets given how, how, you know, high prices are. But, uh, you know, all of this has been happening is OPEC plus, you know, the, both OPEC and Russia and others have been consistently adding more and more oil to the market. That more or less stops at the end of the summer. Uh, so at that stage, then we're really going to see what the rest of the uh, supply side can do. And it doesn't seem to be doing very much right now. So that's when I think markets get even tighter from there. So what price at the pumps are we going to be looking at? Uh, you know, I haven't run the exact numbers for, you know, the, you know, the GTA or the Hamilton area, but, you know, easily over, you know, 240, 250, if that, if that comes to pass. Um, you know, the alternative scenario is that, and the most likely way we avoid a situation like that isn't a particularly happy scenario, which is that demand overall falls because of a global recession of some kind, because all of these costs are getting so high. I think, uh, you know, barring that kind of recessionary condition, I just don't see how we're going to take the steam or, or the pressure out of the oil market uh, to kind of catch its breath. We're just not seeing the growth and supply that we need to yet. Ouch, 240 and 250 is definitely going to hurt, not to say that 210 doesn't already. Rory, we'll have to leave it there. We'll catch base or touch base with you sometime down the road. Thanks so much, Rick. Rory Johnson, the managing director of Toronto-based investment firm Price Street and the founder of the Commodity Context Newsletter. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Startling new data has come out and it shows that our food banks are really busy and this summer could be busier than ever. Here to talk about it is Kirsten Beardsley. She's the CEO of Food Banks Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Kirsten, good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rick. You have a dire prediction about food banks 
in this country this summer, what do you think is going to happen? Well, we polled Canadians um, to hear about how they're doing around the rising cost of food and other, and other costs like rent and gas. And what we found was, quite frankly, shocking. We found um, one in five people in the poll reported that they were missing meals because they couldn't afford to put food on the table. 23% said they were eating less than they felt they should for to have a healthy, nutritious diet, again, because of those costs. And what that means is that more and more of those people will be turning to food banks in the months to come. So how how does this summer compare to past years? Uh, Because usually I would think that the summer is a little slower than most other times of the year, right? That's exactly right. So food banks often see a bit of a, an easing of the need for their services. It's a time maybe to catch their breath and gear up for the busy months in the fall. But this year, we're seeing an increase in need. We're heading into the summer months. We're already seeing most food banks are uh, numbers are up. And the, these data show that more and more people will be coming to the door of a food bank in the, in the coming months. So you pointed to the number one in five people, about 7 million Canadians now reporting that they're going hungry, according to the latest data from Food Banks Canada. What factors are at play? So usually when we uh, talk to food bank users about what brings them to the doors, it's things like low incomes um, or, you know, they lost their job. It's sort of a, a tough time. What we're hearing now is that it's cost. So rent gas, food costs go up, even people making um, a decent living, a decent wage a few years ago, they're not able to make enough money to put food on the table for their families. So really, we're seeing costs driving food bank use right now. And the difficulty is those, most of those like rent or, or mortgage payments, those are hard costs, which you can't really change. You can go to the grocery store and buy a lot less food um, or have to visit a food bank to kind of fill the gap. That's basically what you're seeing. Absolutely. And these are these, we call them impossible choices around food banking. It's, you know, how do you make the decision? Of course, you're going to pay your rent because you don't want your family to not have a home. But how do you make the choice of what you're going to pay and what you're not? And what we see always, it's so heartbreaking to think about is parents will often skip meals so that their kids can eat. Um, And then I say, you know, it's that first day you can't put food on the table for your kids. That's when you reach out to your community to help. So there are so many Canadians right now facing those impossible choices. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Kirsten Beardsley, the CEO of Food Banks Canada. We're diving into some data from Food Banks Canada that shows 7 million Canadians are reporting going hungry and 23% of Canadians eating less than they should due to rising inflation. From what I've gleaned in reading some of the details from this data is that you're seeing a lot of first-time users of food banks And people who once relied on food banks and they no longer needed them are now having to return. Is that right? That's correct. And one of the things I want to point out is that when we hear numbers like the 7 million people, these big millions of people, remember that there's individuals, there's humans behind us. So these are people who are like you and me, and they're going to, you know, they're having to, and and you don't, like I said, you don't go to the food bank on the first day, you're going through tough times. 
So these are people having to make really hard choices um, and they just can't make it work. And like you said, people who've gotten back on their feet, um, gotten jobs and not had to rely on the food bank are now having to come back to the food banking app, food bank after years of, of not needing us. So it's really, you know, it's really, it could be any one of us uh, that needs to turn to the food bank. So how do we solve this issue of uh, food insecurity, I guess, is the overall umbrella? Where do we start? Yeah, well, Food Banks Canada, we talk about this two-part mission. The first part is making sure everyone has food that they need uh, today. And that's where food banks across this country are open and available to anyone in need. The second part of our mission is really advocating for change. We need to see social policy that keeps a pace with the demand um, that we're seeing across the country. We need movement on affordable housing and we need income policy reform so that we don't see an ever-increasing number of people relying on food banks. And that income policy goes down to uh, support payments, maybe higher or, or more long-term kind of um, support payments for those who are finding it difficult to make ends meet? Exactly. So whether you've just recently lost your job or you've been out of the job market for a long time or you have an illness or a disability that means you're not in the labor market, we need people to be able to have enough income to eat and to put food on their table. We know that inflation, rising prices, be it food or gas or, or whatever, everything in between is going up as well. That's probably going to impact a lot of people's ability to donate to food banks as well. Do you see that being a big problem? Actually, that is, a, that is a problem. So not only are the number of people coming through the doors um, going up, but the number of people in a community who have enough um, to give is, is likely to be stretched as well, is likely to go down. So I think it is incumbent upon those of us who haven't um, been as affected during this, um, you know, during whether it's the pandemic or now during the, the inflation period, it is incumbent on us to help those in need, our neighbors in need. So if you are in a position, please reach out to your local food bank. Um, and whether that's donating time or funds or food, it is with much gratitude that we recognize that support. And one of those that people can turn to, especially here, whether they're in need or want to donate, is uh, Hamilton Food Share, one of the more iconic uh, food banks in this community. That is for sure. And we have a great partnership with them over the years. Kirsten, we'll leave it there. I know there's a lot more we can chew on, uh, pardon the pun, uh, on this topic, but we will certainly uh, continue to wave the flag and get more people to support food banks and finally find some long-term solutions as well. Thanks for the time today. Thank you very much. That is Kirsten Beadsley, CEO of Food Banks Canada. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's time for me to pass the torch, to pass the baton, to hand off the leadership of the NDP. I informed our party president of my decision to step down from the leadership of our party. Now that happened a week ago tomorrow as the provincial election day came and went. NDP leader Andrea Horvath resigning as party leader Stephen Del Duca doing the same for the Liberals and has brought about a conversation and a debate over whether or not the Ontario New Democrats and Liberals should form a party. Should they merge Daniel Perry is a consultant with Summa Strategies and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Daniel, good morning. How are you? Morning, Rick. I'm doing, and I'm doing well. How are you? I'm okay. How likely is this to occur? 
I would say not very likely. We're currently in a phase in Ontario politics where the house is on fire if you're the NDP and the Liberals. No one's really sure how to put the fire out, so they think emerging a fire will help make it a smaller fire. But I think at the end of the day, it will just cause more problems if that happens. I'm a pros and cons guy. I like to look mm-hmm. at uh, you know both sides of the ledger. If this were to occur, uh, and, and I agree, I think it's remote, what would the pluses be? The pluses be you would have a somewhat of a united progressive vote in Ontario. So you wouldn't see these uh, in some ridings where votes go to the NDP and the Liberals. You would just see one progressive voice very similar to how it is in Alberta, how it is in uh, B.C., But on the negative side is that they don't agree on everything. There are some issues that are quite divisive inside each party. So that's where the challenge will be. If they do try to form together, it's finding a cohesive message, which, as we saw in the last campaign, was hard to come to detect from both party leaders. Would it also, you know, one of the cons I thought of is, you know, the, the liberals have primarily been a middle party in terms of the political landscape left and right. They have been shifting a little bit left over the last couple of years um would this prevent them from going back to the center which i think is where they want to go i think that's exactly what what has happened they very much have married the federal liberals in terms of moving closer to the left in the same way that means the conservatives have moved closer to the center so they're kind of eating the liberals vote in that sense so if they do form an alliance or even create a new party with the ndp that ability to kind of go back to where they were when they were governing for the 15 years straight is not really available for them anymore and they'll probably lose some of those red tories some of those business liberals that see themselves as a liberal but they wouldn't see themselves as an ndp liberal person our guest on good morning hamilton on 900 chml daniel perry consultant with summa strategies and is joining us to talk about a potential ontario ndp liberal merger the liberals really a non-factor in any province west of ontario and none of those liberal parties have merged with another party um is there any uh, nugget uh, that the ontario liberals can look to western canada to say if, if they're not doing it we shouldn't do it yeah i think they would look around and kind of read the room a little bit and i think even internally the only desire to form with the ndp would to be returned to government but i think a lot of the people in the back room are confident at their ability to return to government once doug ford has former years in office because after eight years the appetite for change usually comes around and as the natural governing party like i feel like they have a pretty good chance of coming back and being that fire party that we've seen in the past that dominates elections. I'm sure the federal liberal and federal NDP parties are looking at this situation with much interest. What do you think is going on in the minds of uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and federal NDP Peter Jagmeet Singh? So I'll start with the NDP because it's a bit more of an interesting storyline there because this was a big hit to Jagmeet's brand. Uh, as the federal leader, he's been very known to be personal on social media, being one of the young people who gets people out to vote. Um, but on election night, he was with his brother in Brampton who ended up losing his seat. And that was a real blow to him because he's seen as a guy who can get it done, especially in Brampton, and he wasn't able to do that for his brother. So I think there's a little bit of concern in there. In terms of Justin Trudeau and the Prime Minister's office, 
I think they're looking at this being like, oh, no. Um, they've had some recent agreements with Doug Ford over the past couple of years, so especially since COVID started. There's been an unlikely friendship started. But at the end of the day, they're very fundamentally different. Uh, Justin Trudeau is looking to implement progressive policies, where D Doug Ford is more of on the popular side and whatever he thinks the people will be popular with people, he'll do. So there could be some challenges ahead in terms of electability. I think seeing those numbers in Ontario for the number of Liberals that lost and the number of NDP that lost, I think a lot of political operatives are looking at that being like, oh no, Ontario might be turning on us. So they're going to be focusing a lot of efforts to reassure Ontarians that the Liberal and the NDP are the party for them federally. In saying that, from a federal government perspective, at least from the Trudeau Liberals, you know, recent memory has it that every time there is a government elected Ontario, the opposite party is elected federally. So the Liberals for a long time ruled the roost here in the province, and Stephen Harper's Conservatives were at, uh, at uh, Parliament Hill running the country, and, and vice versa now. You think the Trudeau Liberals are okay with Ford winning this election? I think they're okay with Ford winning the election in the sense that this gives them hope that, hey, maybe we can hang on for a couple more years. But with that said, I think they're looking at some of the demographics and some of the shifts and some of the key broadings where people are one day are able to wake up and say, I'm willing to vote for the Liberals. But then a couple months later, they're like, actually, the Tories have something to offer. But I think what it really comes down to is when people went to the polls and it wasn't a great turnout in defense and that that was an issue among itself that those that went to the polls that said they said that we're happy to see with what doug ford has done he showed us action during covid we may not have agreed with him on everything but he was able to deliver on some key issues that improved our lives and i think that's what the focus needs to be for the federal government is to not only just promise things which they like to do but also make sure that they're delivering on it and that there's tangible results that they can point to we only got a minute for this one but we have seen a couple of conservative mps flip their allegiance uh, including a local mp um Dan Muse in Flamborough Glenbrook from Patrick Brown to Pierre Poiliev as he goes for the uh, federal leadership of the Conservatives. Uh, what do you read into that? I think people are starting to read the tea leaves a little bit closer and seeing that, uh, especially after the membership sales close, if the numbers are accurate that the Pierre campaign is reporting, that he will be having a blue landslide victory and they want to be part of that because someone wants to be on the losing team. So I think people are kind of trying to hedge their bets and making sure that, that they're good with the future possible future leader of the Conservative Party. Well, we'll see what happens this September, but it, yeah, it looks like a fait accompli at this point. Daniel, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us and enjoy your day. Thank you, you too. That's Daniel Perry, consultant with Summa Strategies, breaking down a potential Ontario NDP Liberal Party merger. Doesn't sound like it is going to happen. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I resign my membership from the tour. I'm, I'm going to play here, um, you know, for now, and that's that's the plan. Um, you know, but what the consequences are going to be, I Obviously, I can't comment on how the tour is going to handle. That is the voice of Dustin Johnson, says he had to think long and hard about leaving the PGA Tour to participate in this new golf series. It's backed by Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The two-time major champion will play in the first Live Golf Invitational. It is offering $25 million in prize money, and it tees off tomorrow just outside London, England. So we're going to talk about that. We will also talk about 
much more enjoyable story, I think, at least for us in this part of the world, and that is that the RBC Canadian Open begins tomorrow for the first time since the start of the pandemic. Here to break it all down is Jason Logan, the editor of Score Golf Magazine. Jason, good morning. How are you? Great. How are you doing, Rick? I'm good. Um, you know what? Back in February, Dustin Johnson said he was fully committed to the PGA Tour. Uh, why, why the change of heart? Well, I'm not sure how much faith we can put in that February comment. Um, if you'll remember, that came shortly after the fallout. Phil Mickelson uh, made some comments to the journalist Alan Shipnick for a forthcoming book that uh, that Shipnick then released because it was on the record. He released an excerpt from the book early and caused a big stir. And I think the immediate backlash that Phil Mickelson received for that when he when he tried to play both sides and you know he was um, he was critical of the PJ Tour. He was also critical of Live Golf at the time, and, and it made it sound like he was essentially using Live Golf as leverage to get what he wanted out of the PJ Tour. And the backlash was such that every other player who was linked to the Saudi Golf Series at the time immediately pledged their allegiance to the PJ Tour. Um, but when the dust settled and uh, it came time to make a decision for real, Obviously, money talks, uh, and that amount of money was too big for them. And, you know, Dustin Johnson was a surprise mostly because he chose to go and start this week. And, you know, you mentioned he's a two-time major champion, but he was also the face of Team RBC. And this week is the RBC Canadian Open. Um, That was a real shock to RBC and Golf Canada. They had no idea that was coming. It was a real slap in the face to them, I think. Um, kind of left them high and dry, and they had to make some quick adjustments for this week's tournament at St. George's. But again, um, he's chasing the money, as are a number of his brethren. How much backlash do you think DJ and others who are going to be part of this tour going to receive, given that you know human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia seem to go hand in hand? Yeah, you know what, Rick? It's funny. Um, there, if you if you go on social media, I would say a large group of probably uninformed people think that they're entitled to do this and that's fine they have that opinion um i think the players that are doing it are going to justify it in their own mind by saying that saudi arabia is is trying to change we know that it's not um it is using golf and other sports as a publicity campaign to try and hide the atrocities that they are committing in that country it'll be interesting i think when these players go and play major championships uh, which they are allowed to do next week's U.S. Open. The USGA has come out and said that those who have earned the right to play in their Open Championship, you know, will not be excluded. They'll be allowed to play. So I'll be interested to see the reaction those players get on American soil. I, I still think it's going to be split. I think there's going to be fans out there that says go get the money, and I think there's others that are going to saying you betrayed us and you betrayed the PJ Tour and we want nothing to do with you anymore. Yeah, I agree with that. Jason Logan is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jason is the editor of Score Golf Magazine. You can check it out online at scoregolf.com. Let's switch gears and talk about the RBC Canadian Open. It is finally back. You must be excited. Yeah, I mean, I'm particularly excited because the whole score St. George is about a seven-minute bike ride away, so this is <laughs> as local as it gets for me. I've been looking forward to uh, not having to go and park my car anywhere for a long time, but it's super exciting. Um, obviously, yesterday was a was a wash out of a day with the rain. Today is beautiful for the Pro-Am. Uh, it's just great to have the tournament back. Um, there's a lot of excited people, and the build-out for this year's tournament is it's just remarkable. 
2019 was one of the biggest tournaments in the history of the event. It was the first one on the new date, and what they've got going on in St. George is, is going to trump that. Um, the amount of square footage for hospitality space is almost doubled. The number of hospitality tents out there for various things just tripled. They've got all kinds of crazy activations. You know, the, there's going to be a company that has a crane lifting people up in the sky for a bird's eye view of the tournament. I mean, they're really, really trying to knock this out of the park, um, in part because it has been three years. But I also think, you know, with Live Golf starting, they want to make a statement that this is the best tour and this is the best event going on. Certainly has the best field, you know, with Rory McIlroy and Scotty Scheffler and Justin Thomas and some others. So it's going to be great and cross our fingers that they get some decent weather come the weekend. Is there a Canadian in the field who has a shot to end a decades-long drought of a Canadian lifting the trophy? Yeah, 68 years now, and uh, trust me, they know that exact number because they're asked about it every year. Yeah, I would say the answer is definitely yes. I mean, I think the thing about Canada's crop of PJ Tour players right now is um, it's the deepest we've had, uh, I think, ever. Um, you, know, you go back to the years of Mike Weir, and he was the number three player in the world at the time, so as far as a superstar, maybe we don't have that right now. But, you know, Corey Connors is a tremendous player. Um, he'll be playing... Um, the RBC Canadian Open at St. George's, it's his first time playing this uh, this event at this course. He's only seen the course a couple of times. He'll see it for a third time today. Adam Hadwin from British Columbia. A great, good story there. He's making a 12-year reunion to St. George's. He actually made a PGA Tour debut at the 2010 Canadian Open at St. George's when he was a member of the old Canadian Tour, and he finished as the low Canadian. So he's been itching to get back to this course. And actually, back then, he used a local caddy, a member at St. George's, who's won a number of club championships, and he's got that guy back on the bag this week. So a nice little reunion there. And then Mackenzie Hughes, of course, from Dundas, Ontario. He's a real gamer. He tends to rise to the occasion in big events. And the last two Canadian Opens, he's had good finishes. I believe top 15 finishes in both those in 2019 and 2018. So, yeah, I, I think there's a good chance that a Canadian at least is in contention on Sunday. And, man, what a story it would be if one of them wound up in the winner's circle. That would be absolutely fantastic. Jason, we got to run. Enjoy the tournament, and we'll talk to you down the road. Okay, thanks, Rick. Jason Logan, editor of Score Golf Magazine. Check them out online at scoregolf.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is Pride Month, as we know. A lot of amazing things happening this month, whether it's a parade, festivities, festivals... Uh, Burger King is celebrating. They're celebrating with a new creation to celebrate Pride Month. Although, it's leaving a bit of a bad taste in some people's mouths. Burger King in Austria has unveiled the Pride Whopper, and it says, It's time to be proud. It sounds like a good idea. Uh, The execution, maybe not so much. What makes it so special, um, it comes with what BK calls... Two equal buns, meaning you can get this Pride Whopper with either two top halves of a burger bun or two bottom halves of a burger bun. Hmm. Ella Vresiu is an associate professor of marketing at York University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Ella, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you, Rick? I'm okay. Your thoughts on this marketing ploy from Burger King? So on the one hand, it is rather hilarious. It, it's pun intended. 
Um, it's meant to be lighthearted. However, some users, while some users on social media have found the new burger funny, others have criticized the company, arguing that the joke is offensive on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's an example of rainbow washing, which is a practice that I want to speak to this morning. So for those of you that are unfamiliar, rainbow washing is the practice of companies showing only surface level support for the LGBTQ2S plus community or identifying people without any specific action that could improve their lives or this community. So we have a whole slew of brands jumping on the Pride Month bandwagon around the world uh, in June where they're just superficially uh, calling attention to the social cause or to this uh, traditionally marginalized community without any real policies, for example, uh, for their own employees, acknowledging and benefiting uh, the community or employees that self-identify as LGBTQ+, or without giving back to the community. So this is the real criticism that's happening uh, around Burger King and other companies. Yeah, one of the questions asked of Burger King officials, to which they have no comment, is, you know, are any of the proceeds from this uh, Pride Whopper going to go to Pride initiatives or LGBTQ initiatives? And uh, as I said, no comment from Burger King. It seems like a really shallow marketing campaign. Exactly, which is why it makes it a prime example of rainbow washing. And there are countless examples of this. Another one is um, every brand under the sun having a rainbow now superimposed on their logos, especially for their various uh, social media official accounts, which sometimes can backfire, uh, as in the case of Entertainment Weekly a few years ago. So it was a rainbow flag and the letters EU, which spelled ill, <laughs> or uh, come off as insincere, that they're just doing this for one month, and then after June is business as usual. Mm -hmm. Ella Vresiu is an associate professor of marketing at York University and is our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about the Pride Whopper at Burger King in Austria as uh, BK has announced and introduced its Time to Be Proud marketing initiative, which really hasn't hit home for a lot of people. Could we see a potential Burger King backlash even here in Canada? Perhaps. Perhaps if uh, news travels fast, at the very least, could be a, a backlash on social media if the conversation picks up where Canadian consumers express their uh, discontent on uh, Twitter, which seems to be the primary platform for these types of conversations. Do you think this is a case of creating an intentional innuendo or is this more likely to be an inadvertent oversight? I think it's an inadvertent oversight. I think brand, the brand meant well. They were trying to be funny. They were trying to bring attention to uh, Pride Month. However, um, they, they failed. And that is because it's no longer enough for companies to just simply bring awareness to a social issue or a social cause or even a marginalized groups. Because in today's day and age, nonprofits and other organized social groups online and offline are doing a great job of creating this type of awareness to these issues without asking individuals to purchase something from them. 
Um, so now, as a consequence, companies are tasked to do more than just bring awareness through selling uh, a funny burger or with buns uh, um, or uh, putting a, sticking a rainbow flag on their products, et cetera, et cetera. So they have to give back to the communities and ensure that their employees are well taken care of, lobby for common goods, et cetera, et cetera. So we as consumers are asking more of companies than just simply bringing awareness to an issue. That's a great point and a great chat from Ella Vresio. Ella, thanks for the time today. Thanks so much, Rick. Ella Vresio is an associate professor of marketing at York University, and I'm not sure too many people are going to be at least traveling to Austria just to get this Pride Whopper. And if it does come to Canada, that'll be a big hit. Again, if you missed it, the BK Pride Whopper features two equal buns, meaning you can get either two top halves of a burger gun or two bottom halves. I think it just missed the target. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is an interesting one. Since the start of the pandemic, there's been a resurgence of interest in Canadian art. Yeah, auctions have recorded booming sales, record prices, unprecedented buyer activity. Things are hopping on the art scene. And um, a week tonight... At the Globe and Mail Center in Toronto, Cowley Abbott's Spring Live Auction will take place. It begins at 7 p.m. It's also going to be live streamed at CowleyAbbott.ca. And you can take a look at all the works of art online at that website or by visiting Cowley Abbott's Gallery on Dundas Street West in T.O. It's just across the street from the Art Gallery of Ontario. Uh, Now until June 15th. I'm sure there's lots of great things to see and bid on. And to give us a preview, what is going to happen one week from tonight is Rob Kelly. He's a Canadian art specialist and the president and co-founder of Kelly Abbott and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Rob, how's it going? Very well. How are you doing this morning, Rick? I'm good. What uh, what pieces of art are we going to be able to see at this auction? Well, it's we're actually very fortunate. It's a very wide array, um, a wide array of uh, fantastic examples by Canadian artists that really cover about two centuries. So we have, I mean, really leading the sale has been uh, a 1916 uh, oil sketch by by famed Canadian artist Tom Thompson. Um, it's a painting that hasn't appeared at auction in decades, and the estimate on that painting is between 900000 and $1.2 million. That's on the cover of the catalog, so that's been uh, certainly of great interest. Um, we have other fantastic examples as well by members of the Group of Seven, like Franklin Carmichael and A.J. Casson and A.Y. Jackson. Um, we have a Incredible um, post-war example by uh, by uh, Quebec um, Quebec master Guido Molinari that's being offered between two hundred and three hundred thousand, which is making its uh, debut at auction as well. And then we also have works by uh, Jean-Paul Riopel as well as Cornelius Kriegoff, a painting that is being offered for the first time as well. So it really is. I mean, we're really proud of the fact that we have a really balanced sale that uh, well represents um, again about two centuries of Canadian art. What kind of work is done behind the scenes to get these works of art into the auction house? A lot of um, it's a lot of it is client uh, client relationships, and a lot of it is advertising and promotion. And we also, you know, uh, get the pandemic made it a bit more difficult, but a lot of travel as well. So, I mean, these paintings come to us from literally coast to coast to coast, as well as um, I think there's several works as well that come to us from the United States as well as uh, overseas. And so a lot of it is just following up with clients, and uh, we offer free evaluations at kellyabbott.ca. So we also um, have a lot of clients contacting us regularly um, with works of art they're curious about, 
Um, and so it is. It's, so we have a large team as well. So it really is about six months of, uh, of outreach as well as speaking with clients. So why the sudden boom in the interest in Canadian art? Is it just that, that pent-up demand that the pandemic has created for a number of things? That's definitely part of it. Uh, when the pandemic started, you know, in March 2020, we certainly held our breath waiting to see what it would mean for the market. Um, you know, we weren't sure if this would have led to a recession within the art market where there'd be less interest, but we actually found the opposite. And we found with so many clients at home for longer periods of time, as well as with a lot of clients not spending in the same way, especially collectors, um, their focus returned to art. We had a lot of collectors who, you know, we often wouldn't speak to all that often, but they were active in purchasing. Um, we speak to them all the time now because their lives, you know, their lives changed in the last two years. And not only that, but they found themselves at home. And so looking around their environment as well, they looked to beautify their homes and their focus became art once again. Um, and on the other side of that, most importantly, um, for these auctions, the auctions of, that offer these quality works, a lot of collectors made, made decisions about consigning artwork. Um, a lot of collectors who you know, had been meaning to speak to, to speak to our auction house about selling an artwork, but had just been too busy to even really consider it or get into a, into a discussion about you know, selling their Group of Seven painting. The pandemic really afforded them that opportunity. And so the market really has been fed by a lot of, um, a lot of fantastic opportunities for collectors creating this cycle um, where you have not only incredible works, but then, of course, prices being driven by that. Callie Abbott's Spring Live Auction will be held June 15th at 7 p.m. at the Globe and Mail Centre in Toronto and live-streamed at callieabbott.ca. Rob Callie is our guest, Canadian art specialist and president and co-founder of Callie Abbott. What impacts the value of a piece of art? Well, it can be several factors. Um, obviously, first, Rick is the artist. Um, so, uh, of course, an artwork by you know, by, uh, by a master like Tom Thompson or a member of the Group 7 is going to carry much more value potentially than a lesser-known artist at auction, one that may not have had the same level of fame as, as, as those artists. Subject matter is very important as well. Um, you know, as an example, the Tom Thompson painting we're offering, that painting of, of a landscape of Algonquin Park, probably his best-known subject, that carries a great deal of demand in the market, more so than, let's say, if we were offering a portrait by Tom Thompson, which he's less known for. Um, the size, um, of course, the, the medium, whether it's a work on paper or an oil painting, the history of the painting as well, um, which collections it may have been included in, in the past, and also where it may have been uh, featured in exhibitions and well-known galleries. The period as well, again, coming back to even the Group of Seven, their work from the 1920s, which is the period when they're associated, it tends to carry more value than the work later in, in their periods. Um, the quality of a work, which can just be whether the artist was having a good day or, or a not-so-good day, condition, the rarity, and also what's in fashion. Um, and a good example of what's in fashion has been the work of Maude Lewis. You know, when I first started in the business 20 years ago, you know, folk artist Maude Lewis, her work was selling for less than $5,000. Since the movie was released, Maude, in 2016, her work now sells sometimes in excess of fifty and even $100,000. Wow. How did you get into the art business? Quite accidentally, in fact. Um, I actually was in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, I was um, with a, a temp agency, and I ended up working in the work, working as a clerk and accounts clerk in an auction house in Toronto, and fell in love with the business and with Canadian art as well. And so I was very, very fortunate. And um, yeah, it's just been a fantastic trip since then. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun, and sounds like this uh, spring live auction is going to be a lot of fun. Rob, appreciate the time. Good luck with it. Thanks, Metric. That's Rob Cowley, Canadian art specialist and president and co-founder of Cowley Abbott. Cowley Abbott Spring Live Auction is going to be held one week from tonight. So if you're into art, you'll want to mark 
June 15th on your calendar at 7 p.m. at the Globe and Mail Centre in Toronto. It's also going to be live-streamed at cowleyabbott.ca, so you don't even have to go to 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 bid on or partake in this auction. And you can also view all the items online, cowleyabbott.ca, up to and including auction day on June the 15th. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. That is the Red Hill Valleys, and they're from Hamilton. They've just released the first installment of their two-part EP, Travel Well Part 1. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Let's talk to the gang. Chelsea McWilliams, Tim Allard, and Danielle Baudin, all from the Red Hill Valleys, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing well, thanks. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. Uh, Let's start with Chelsea. Uh, Tell us about the new EP. Oh, wow. Yeah, it just came out on Friday, and it's been a a long, long wait for this EP to finally come out with everything that's happened in the past two years. So we're really excited and proud, and it feels good to finally get some new music out into the world. Tim, what is part one all about? Uh, well, it's it's hard to say that it's about any one thing in particular because it's it uh, it's been a long time in the making, as Chelsea sort of uh, implied. We started our our last album came out, if you can believe it, or we can't believe it, six years ago, <laughs> and we've been working on the, all these songs since. We thought we'd have this record finished five years ago, but then we got a new drummer. We've had a lot of different. Uh, transitional things with our band and stuff so we're finally in a place where this was finished and ready to come out and then and then everything stopped for two years so we're, <laughs> we're finally here so thematically it's not really about anything it's just sort of the culmination of of a lot of uh progress within our band and, and it's kind of a new sound for us compared to our last record danielle it must have been rather frustrating having to start and stop and redo things and wait for the pandemic to i guess ease what was the process like of creating this album um some songs got recorded and re-recorded you know three times <laughs> because we had the time. were given the time but because we had all that time to really like buckle down and and like commit to getting things finished it was actually productive when it came to getting the album done and just really getting it done the way we wanted it and um there was no rush and (laughs) and (laughs) so we're really proud of it and uh the product that we released on friday is something that we put a lot of blood sweat and tears into (laughs) and Happy that it's out into the world now. <laughs> Absolutely. We're joined on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML by the Red Hill Valleys from Hamilton. They've just released the first installment of their two-part EP, Travel Well, Part 1. And we're joined by Chelsea McWilliams, Tim Allard, and Danielle Baudin. Chelsea, um, this is Part 1. What's been Part 2 working on like? Part 2 is is finished, and we're going to be releasing part two probably around the fall um we just had such a a collection like this collection of songs and the body of work that tim mentioned that we've had for a long time um and as a band we've grown so much so we really just wanted to release it and put it out in a way that made sense for um you know anyone getting into our music for the first time and and somehow kind of finding a way to put music out now before we go on tour. And then when we come back and maybe have a bit more 
downtime as far as touring goes, have the second EP to release um, around that time. Tim, uh, talk about the tour that's coming up. Well, uh, we're playing um, North by Northeast in Toronto next week. And then after another week or so, we head uh, to the UK. We're playing various places around England for about two weeks, um, including a festival there that we're really excited about. And then we fly back and we play Cavendish Beach Music Festival in Cavendish PEI and then a few spots on the way back on the East Coast. Um, You can check our website for all the details because I have no idea what they are. (laughs) (laughs) I just get dragged around and get handed a guitar. Sounds like a plan. Danielle, we'll end it with you. we got about 30 seconds. How cool is it to get back on tour, given what's happened over the last couple of years? It's like the best thing possible for us. We love playing live. We love uh, connecting with people and and hearing our music uh, in the air and all together and and not just the the recordings that we've been hearing, you know, mm-hmm. over and over again over the past six years. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's it's going to be really, really great to connect with people again and, and be out on the road and in the van and <laughs> hanging out together and laughing and, you know, all the other fun stuff that comes with tour, good and the bad. Can't wait to see the tour and for part two to come out as well. Uh, the Red Hill Valleys, thanks for joining us today and uh, have fun on this tour. Thank you. Thank you. That's Chelsea McWilliams, Tim Allard, and Danielle Bodin from the Red Hill Valleys. Check out their two-part EP, Travel Well, Part 1. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.